Should someone have to have a government-issued license to drive a car? Hell no! What's next? Requiring a license to make toast in your own damn toaster? Fuck the feds, 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 feds. has no idea what a libertarian is. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 283 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And I am very excited to be joined by our guest today. Um, many of you will know him as the uh, author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals, and a Dream the dream of a world without democracy, um, which is very much a successor to his previous excellent book, um, Globalist, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. But as, as we were talking about, um, Quinn Slobodian is also a, a connoisseur of um, all of the, the filth in the world, all the things that make you mad and the things that most people don't have the stomach to read. But thankfully, um, Quinn, I was really, really impressed and uh, really feeling for you at all of the, the B-sides and rarities of like, not just right wing, but like the kind, like the right wingers that right wingers have never heard of um, that you just immersed yourself in for, for your new oh, yeah. book. No, no. A lot of the stuff I needed to like, read like with a handkerchief over my head, you know, like directly into my eyes and mouth to just really feel the rarity of what I was consuming. Like like consuming Ortolan, hiding your face from God. Exactly. Eyes. This is libertarian Ortolan <laughs> we're talking about. <laughs> and and oh man, we are going to get into the the absolute delicacies of libertarian and anarcho capitalist thinking. Um and, and I, I know Ed and I have our own stories to tell about why we're even aware of things like David Friedman's machinery of freedom um and stuff, but but I, I'm really excited to get into all of that. Um, your your book, your two books together, I think, are just a, a like they should be read back to back. I mean, it's like very clear to me that crack up capitalism, or at least it seems clear to me, crack up capitalism was coming out of a lot of the research you did for for globalist, um, like kind of seeing how this vision of a libertarian world order, where it's this kind of network of zones and thought experiments and you know wannabe utopias for radical market extremism like all of that sitting very well essentially the the praxis for the theory of neoliberalism yeah i mean i think it's funny because i think on the one hand the books are like covering opposite things but then if you look at them more closely i think they're just looking at the same thing at two different scales so, I mean, the, the story of globalists is this attempt to kind of shackle the nation in the period of decolonization and um, mass democracy to make sure that democracies don't do things that are out of line with the kind of dictates of capitalism. And there was this project from like the 20s to the 90s to try to come up with ever more um, 
elaborate and kind of immaculate supranational institutions that could lock in certain prerogatives of the free movement of capital, the protection of uh, investor rights, the protection of private property. And when it hit the 90s, there's a way you can see that that project started sort of simultaneously succeeded and kind of started to break down from the point of view of the people involved or who were sort of uh, observing it most closely. So you got the EU, you got NAFTA, you got the WTO, but then the same people who had been sort of cheerleading for this supranational order suddenly got this sinking feeling that the very institutions that they had dreamed of were now sort of Trojan horses for a kind of politics that they abhorred. So there was a fear that Jacques Delors would bring social Europe to the EU, that NAFTA might become a way to protect workers' rights in three different countries, that the WTO could turn into a green uh, version of itself. So there was in the 90s, especially and going forward, like this, this trajectory that went in the opposite direction, a bunch of bunch of people were like, we need to get out. Like we spent a lot of time trying to figure out what the best sort of multi-level governance institutions would be. And now we've realized that we kind of, you know, created our own sarcophagus and we need to create spaces of escape and exit. So on the one hand, it kind of does look like that. In some cases, it is like that, like the case of Murray Rothbard, which I'm sure we'll talk about. It is about like getting away from the grid of institutional um, legal encasement. But on the other hand, it's the same project at two scales. So when you look at a lot of these projects about creating sort of quasi-extraterritorial zones for capital and investors, they still see themselves as, in a positive sense, um, protected by and kind of enshrouded in institutions that expand up above the scale of the nation. So when the libertarian investors in Honduras fear that they're going to get expropriated or kicked out, they appeal to the Central American Free Trade Agreement and say, international economic law turns out to be more helpful than we thought it was at first. So I think that that I think you're right to see that the two books is in sort of close dialogue and succession with each other. But it's kind of interesting how depending on how you turn them, they're either kind of opposites or two parts of the same story. I, I mean, I, as a kind of way of opening up, you know, before we get into the real details um, of the of your case studies and, and some of these real figures and what they think, maybe I, I want to open up. I want to ask you. I feel like you're the perfect person to ask this question. Um, it, it, it's it's simple, but perhaps a tough question. Quinn, are we in a post-neoliberal era? I mean, like, (laughs) so I I say this because Ed and I were talking about this before, um, where we've been hearing a lot of people just kind of saying this, right? It's become a real kind of turn of phrase recently, like really accepted and repeated as um, a truism. But I've, Mm -hmm. I've never really heard anybody back it up or even really explain what they mean when they say like, we're in a post neoliberal era. It's just kind of like, okay, we've moved on from all of that. And so, you know, maybe that's your third book is how neoliberalism died. But I, 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 I am at least skeptical of the claim, which I think is why it's an open question for me. While I, I don't really have a, a solid um, stance on it one way or the other, but I, I, I'm at least, I haven't really, 
the people I've heard say it who I trust, I've not heard them back it up. But I've also heard a lot of people who I uh, don't really trust say it, which gives me pause to think like, why? Why is that? Why is this a truism now? And what? What? Like, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, to start with, I don't think it's really that helpful to think about ideologies as things that live and die, or or at least have the you know have the that one can sort of pronounce an obituary for, and then they vanish from the face of the earth. I mean, that obviously isn't true for socialism or anarchism or normal old liberalism. So this this tendency to talk about the death of neoliberalism, as I find just like a mixed, just a mismatch of metaphor or a bad metaphor. Um, what I think that, you know, the more extended answer to that is that I think it's helpful to think about these things, both at the first at the level of kind of political rhetoric, and then at the level of the kind of hardwiring of the legal code, you know, within which we all operate. At the level of rhetoric, the, the sort of things that politicians say when they're on the stump or um, giving a press release or addressing, you know, the G20 or whatever. There has definitely been a real change in the sort of notes that politicians hit in the course of their talking points. So from the 90s up into 2016, it was just standard to say that globalization was like a force of nature. We were uh, compelled as politicians and nation states to sort of bend to its dictates and to resist uh, the idea of cross-border competition or the idea that investors would just go wherever the gains were the highest was just, uh, you know, fooling oneself. And we needed to adapt to the, these, the realities of what Gerhard Schroeder called the storms of globalization. Since 2016, that has changed. Um, I think it's like a kind of then a research question, like how it changed. I think that... Um, I think that Bernie Sanders's, you know, failed uh, Democratic candidacy was the opening that then Bannon, through the spokesperson of Trump, was wise and canny enough to sort of move through once the opening rhetorically had been made. And since then, I think, especially on the free trade matter, um, the Democrats uh, from the mainstream you know, and, and the Republicans on the right have just been following through, like completely breaking what had been taboos until very recently. So the idea that, you know, you should produce things at home, even if it's more expensive, because you'll have more resilience in cases of crises, da da da. The idea that you would pick winners through sort of subsidies or creating even national champions or heavy duty state investment to bring back manufacturing. I mean, these were all just completely wild things to say, like literally until 2016. So I think Bernie then Trump broke with part of this neoliberal consensus at a rhetorical level. And obviously, the kind of left liberal progressive think tankers who have populated Biden's policy shop um, from places like the Roosevelt Institute and Center for American Progress on down have... Um, given him this new set of talking points that he certainly never would have come to by himself, right? I mean, that's the obvious first thing to say is this has nothing to do with Biden himself. This has to do with the people around him and his staff. Um, so he has now shifted, I think, the grounds of rhetoric 
such that the Europeans are, are sort of forced to follow suit, even though they're confused, right? It's like the Germans and the French are like, but wait, what? You were saying for decades, like, all right, I guess the rules are different, fine. <laughs> um, and, you know, and there's a way you step back, like China obviously did this before Bernie or Trump did, sort of broke the rules at the free trade consensus. But so I think there's, you know, for sure, it would be foolish to compare the things people said at the recent G20 meeting this last week to what they said in the 2010s and act like it's the same old set of um, uh, metaphors and pieces of rhetoric. It's different. And I think at that level, it is helpful to say that this is post-neoliberal in the sense that um, different priorities guide the, the promises that politicians are making, at least on paper. When you descend to the level of the actual legal machinery and the legal coding of, of capitalism as it exists, I think the story looks quite different. And it's you've been able to follow this with something like, you know, the rise and fall of the ESG kind of bubble, right? So for a year, Larry Fink and BlackRock were like all in with ESG. It was much hype about this. We're in an era where it's not just about the profit margin. It's not just about shareholder value anymore. There are new priorities that orient investing. Even the big asset managers agree. But then as soon as, you know, inflation ticked up and the Ukraine war started and so on, very quickly, not only did it prove to be hypocrisy at the top of the pyramid, but the shareholders themselves started activate, act, you know, being activists against that and calling on the laws of like the fiduciary responsibility of um, the asset managers who are required legally to seek the highest uh, return for their investment. They can't put post-neoliberal values ahead of good old neoliberal values. They're not allowed to. They will be sued by their own customers. Um, so, you know, that you could multiply that example from, you know, the decision-making rooms of BlackRock down to the, uh, the, the, the employee break rooms of, you know, Target or Walmart and you'd be perplexed to, to hear someone pronounce the end of neoliberalism because you just say, oh, it's the same old shit. Like workers are being squeezed for every, um, you know, every, every uh, minute that they can be with the smallest amount of compensation. Um, you know, the tepid unionization drives are running into all kinds of legal obstacles and obstacles from the bosses. And this is just, you know, it's, it's a struggle that has, has, um, staggered on across the decades in the neoliberal era, quote unquote, and now in the post neoliberal era. But I think the everyday lives of average Americans haven't changed in a way that would substantiate like a, uh, you know, before and after story that the post neoliberal label implies. So I think unless you're willing to kind of differentiate between that level of like talk and practice discourse and reality then you'll just find yourself overclaiming um, mm. and 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 sounding like a patsy. You'll just sound like a useful idiot for like Jake Sullivan, rather than someone who's actually attentive to what's happening on the ground. I love that answer because it makes a lot of sense to me. I think it made like that that very understanding the relationship of of how that of how neoliberalism or post neoliberalism whatever is operating at different levels and and you bringing up 
the law, I think, is really crucial here as well. I mean, that that is very much a, the story of your book、um, and the story of these kind of market radicals that you talk about and the 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 anti democratic、um, utopias that they hope to make. Is it is just as much about a kind of Political and economic ideology of markets, as it is about、um, a, a understanding the law as as something that should be captured, as something that needs to be focused on,、um, as as machinery to kind of remake and then.、Um, Solidify in place.、Uh, I mean, like you know, you're talking about the ne- the the kind of legal machinery is still very much neoliberal, and that's be- that's not an accident. That's because the 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 kind of the fathers of neoliberalism that you talk about,、um, people like Milton Friedman. I mean, it's called the Friedman Doctrine, right? That like f- your fiduciary responsibility is shareholder profit,、um, and that they they did a really good job of. Of capturing the law and baking in their their policies and their values and their ideals,、um, but we can even see this, and I think this is a really nice way to actually talk not about the 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 people that everyone knows, the the Friedmans and Hayeks, or more contemporarily people like Peter Thiel. You know, these are these are the libertarians that everybody knows, the household name libertarians. But I think there there are other more fringe figures. Figures here、um, that have that really make up the intellectual undercurrents of what's now seen as an extreme but pretty mainstream、uh, right wingism.、Um, and here I want to talk about people like Murray Rothbard,、uh, da- David Friedman, the son of Milton Friedman, and these are people who also, while they are, these are anarcho capitalists, right? These are these are. They take the libertarianism to such an extreme that they think those other libertarians are, are soft liberals,、um, you know. The, and, but but they are also extremely focused not just on sketching a kind of political ideology or these economic thought experiments about a world ruled by markets unchained,、um, but they also real Murray Rothbard, David Friedman. These people also focused a lot on law. Um, and this is a story you tell a lot in the book, and you know I'll, I'll hand it over to you to kind of give some background on on who these people exactly are. But you know Murray Rothbard, very much focusing on、uh, a multiplicity of laws, right? Understanding that legal regimes should be like fast food restaurants; you should be able to change and patronize the ones that you want.、Um, David Friedman, you know he. Well, for people who know him, they're more familiar with his book, *The Machinery of Freedom*, which is something that, for longtime listeners of, of of TMK, will know that, like very early in our run, we did a multi-part series reviewing and discussing in depth、um, the entirety of of David Friedman's book, which outlines a. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's so it's so it's so fascinating because it outlines this like this manual for. Did he say、uh, we didn't get it or something like that? Oh yeah, he also responded <laughs> to listened <laughs> to the series and then like、uh, said that we just、uh, you 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 guys don't get it or something. <laughs> so, I got it. I got an email from David Friedman on New Year's Eve. <laughs> he he was like. 
he was just he was just cruising academia.edu for things that mention him and then just cold emailing whoever mentioned him you know to try to try to basically be like debate me bro was it before yeah, um, or after the ball drop before <laughs> yeah it's, it's very clear he has a google alert for his name and he just yeah. anything of course and anything that mentions him he he's not only an observer he's gonna go engage and tap the glass it's this debate but but before that i really wanted to mention that on top of this machinery of freedom book he wrote that outlines a kind of uh, a how-to guide a blueprint for an anarcho-capitalist society he also wrote a law and economics textbook um which which I which I have read, uh, and and so these people were really really focused on not just this like extreme political ideology, but very much focused on the law as a tool um, that needed to be captured by a kind of libertarian economics. Yeah, but have you read Salamander, his fantasy novel? <laughs> I've, I've not. Um, even no. I have my limits, no. uh, but I'm, I'm sure actually, you have read it. No, actually, I haven't either. <laughs> no, like that is also the the frontier that I have not actually transgressed or gone beyond. Um, oh wow! Yeah, no. I mean, he's a law professor, right? I mean, that he is. Uh, he doesn't have an economics degree. He has a law degree. That's what his 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 um, expertise is in. But um, but I think you're right, and so. And this is, I think, that is one of those things that just gets missed by critics of libertarianism and neoliberalism all the time in ways that drives me bananas because it's so hard to miss. It's just so right there. The first one is this thing that I can't believe that, you know, people have had to do for like 25 years, which is to be like, actually, neoliberals don't want to get rid of the state. They actually just want a different kind of state. Like you have to repeat that like prayer wheel like every time the term <laughs> neoliberalism gets said and you can't believe you still need to say it but there you are you need to say it um and so part of my you know i was i was saying to someone else that like when you write a book or you write about something for a long time and i'm sure you two have this experience too as as um journalists and academics is like you always know that there's like there, you have an Achilles heel in your argument that so far, if you're lucky, it, no one has like jammed the blade into. But at some point, you're just like, fuck it, I am just going to jam it in myself because it's just bugging me so much. And in that case, it was like going on and on about how neoliberals don't hate the state. They just want to reformat it. They want to repurpose it. But in the back of my head, I was like, oh, but there are anarcho-capitalists. Like there are people who actually do want to do away with the state per se entirely. And so this part of the impetus for the book was like, I just have to write about them. Like I would just need to just have it out and I need to just like, you know, open up that chink in my armor and like, let it, whatever, let people stab it. When you do that, then when you're like, all right. And some people actually do want to privatize the state altogether or, or, or offer all of the services one associates with the state as for hire sort of con for contract, um, privately offered services in competition with one another, then immediately you're sort of forced to reckon with the centrality of the law because you're like, oh, well, if there's not going to be a state enforcing the law, then what is this going to look like? Well, it's going to be a competing set of rules. And all it is is really a kind of like a utopia of contracts, right? Like that's to me the most wonderful paradox of libertarianism is like 
people have a misguided impression that they sort of dislike rules. It's like, no, 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 no. No one loves rules more than libertarians. God, they, they want love rules. They literally want to create conditions that we're forced to talk about rules all the time. Why? Because there's now going to be competing sets of rules. Are your rules better than my rules? Where do they clash? Where do they conflict? How can we reconcile our various rules? Do I want my friend's rules across the table instead of yours? Um, to me, it's like it is. Uh, it's like there is some sort of almost like pleasure that comes out of just exposure to the construction of you know new sets of constraints and um, sets of conditions um, by which one has to live. So it's actually a kind of a masochistic almost uh, ideology that just loves to dream up new ways to like constrain communities and individuals in new and uh, previously unthought of ways. The reason that they do it, right, is that they think that the existing corset or straitjacket that we already exist in, in existing democratic nation states, is worse. Right. Right. <laughs> so because they conceive themselves as already being somehow like so tightly bound that they can't breathe and that's driving them insane, they're like, I'm going to design a better corset. I'm going to design a better straitjacket. Like that's actually the project of libertarianism. And in most cases, the people most actively involved aren't really even necessarily that conversant in like neoclassical economics or the way it would be taught in an undergraduate classroom or certainly a graduate classroom. It's not about doing, you know, small scale um, tests or sort of um, creating models or doing mathematized kind of um, understandings of supply demand relationships or whatever. It is about rewriting the social contract like over and over and over but not as something grounded in society but something grounded in like kind of a voluntary submission to a new set of rules and um that can seem really uh for me anyway like well just repellent but also it's it's confusing why someone would be attracted to that undertaking and i think david friedman and murray rothbard are two people that it's helpful to look at as like two reasons why someone might be drawn to that. I think like David Friedman is of the category of libertarians, which there are many for whom it is just like an attractive intellectual exercise. Like it is literally the same as like tabletop gaming, you know, with ever more arcane rules. Like, you know, I've been playing some of these new ones with my son who's seven years old and we, just, we open it up and there's just like 14,000 like game tokens. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> And, you know, for them, they're like, oh, yeah, let's go. Like, let's figure this out. Let's put these in piles. I mean, it makes sense as well, because their whole like a lot of the idea of economics is a, is an optimization problem. Right. And mm -hmm. so for them, it's like whether it's an extremely complex tabletop role playing game um, or it's the creation of a new world, um, mm -hmm. all of it is about like creating the right rules to then solve the right optimization problems. You're like min-maxing, right? How do I min-max uh, the perfect society? Yes. And I think that often without the expectation of like a reward in the, in the short term, like that's where I think it's helpful to kind of keep distinct these sort of anarcho-capitalist speculators at the sort of political theoretical level and the kind of, uh, you know, game stock, like meme stock, uh, Wall Street bats type characters. Because I think there is the version of 
what we're describing, which is just like trying to crack the system, find the angle and just get like the short the short term gratification of like small profit going all in. But this is not like that at all. And that's actually one thing I admire about David Friedman is at the end of Machinery of Freedom, and I don't know if you're freedom, if you, I don't know if you remember this, but he's like, P.S. There is no guarantee that there will actually be greater freedom once we put these rules in place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the biggest P.S. Like, in wait, the world. Really? <laughs> <laughs> like, so you just want me to dismantle everything about society on the chance that like things might turn out like better? Wow. But that is, I think, you know what is admirable about their level of commitment is they're just like, things might be worse at the end of this, but we will have had the gratification of voluntarily reconstructing it like piece by piece the whole way. And we might live with less and we might live under constrained circumstances and we'll be surrounded by enemies almost definitely against whom we'll have to defend ourselves with like all force possible, but we will live in this self-chosen. Yeah. Do you say cube? No, no, I said purer sort of society, right? Or- well, pure, pure, exactly, because it's ultimately, uh, e- it's ultimate egoism. Because their problem with rules is not rules as such, but the fact that other people made the rules, them not them. Yeah. They, yeah. They're, they're like, but I, but me, and people exactly like me, and this gets us to like Murray Rothbard as well. Mm-hmm. You know, people who are um, racially, ethnically, uh, genetically exactly like me did mm-hmm. not create the rules. And 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 you, yeah, I mean, you do have to admire at least the the intellectual honesty to say, and by the way, at the end of all of this, it may actually be a far worse and less liberated society, but hey, mm-hmm. at least we created the the shackles that bind us, not mm-hmm. somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 something I also am interested in asking you about, you know, what you what what's your sense is over the years, because I think you're you're you know, especially crack up capitalism kind of talks a lot about examples carved out by people who if allowed to create the society they would want to it would in one way or another be an exterminist or an apartheid centric or you know a sort of alternative modernity that is much more uglier and brutal mm-hmm. uh, and a huge step back you know a fi- probably a final victory over liberalism in some instances for them um you know and where where, where do these people fit in terms of you know, maybe the intellectual history of, of it, you know, is this sort of anti, uh, anti-liberal, you know, a desire for much more structured, hierarchical, discriminatory world, you know, mm-hmm. sits at the core of it? Does it develop at it? Is it the intermingling of other influences yeah. that come out of this project? Yeah, well, that's actually something I was thinking about, or I was going to say is that this might seem like this completely outre, like, um, de novo kind of occult version of politics that they're proposing. Like, why would you choose these things? Who would ever choose these things? But it actually is just a recapitulation of the settler colonial imaginary. I mean, that's actually what it is, right? It's, uh, it is about saying we are going to the edge of quote unquote civilization, creating something new. It will be hard. It will be brutal. There will be enemies, but we will live by our own terms um, and we will be able to like forge communities from nothing. And for Rothbard in particular, I mean, he's quite open that for him, the archetypical kind of economic actor, the best possible economic and political actor is the settler. 
I mean, he says he uses the term settler. And it's someone who does the Lockean act of, you know, mixing the labor with the land and turning something that was nothing into something new. And I think that the relationship to liberalism, though, it's really interesting. I never really thought about it. Um, and for you to refer to it as anti-liberal, because it is. But there's this really interesting, for me, um, body of history that's being written now about specifically like liberalism and empire. And it's kind of about that question of like, what is the essence of liberalism? Uh, and, and the answer is, it depends where you look at it from. You know, if you talk about it from, you know, the halls of Cambridge and Oxford, than it is, or St. Andrews, than it is like these set of abstract principles that dictate some level of tolerance and so on. If you look at how liberalism looked at the at the bleeding edge of, of the empire where liberal principles were being enacted, of course, it was something quite different. So it begs the question for me, or it makes me ask myself, like, is this, again, a kind of like, opposite or inverse of the principles that they started out with, you know, like this, I'm working on a book now that will be called Hayek's Bastards. Like, are they illegitimate heirs of the real principles they started with? They, they love you over at the Mises family. (laughs) (laughs) The title. Yeah. If you ever get an invite to speak at the the Mises Institute, don't take it, Quinn. You'll end up in a suitcase. Yeah. I'm going to make, I'll make them like drink the soup before I drink it for sure. Right. 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 Unlike uh, Jason Red, I unfortunately didn't get a chance to read the book. So I'm I'm learning about all the the wonderful things that are within the book by listening to the conversation thus far. Uh, but the topic about you know that colonial mindset of like ownership and control, you know, do you feel like uh, the ultra wealthy, you know, the Bezos is the Musk. The reason why they're so obsessed with like space travel or going to Mars is because there really isn't any new lands to like conquer, or settle, or like take over, and it's clear they want that power. And you know, with the that's my money, my rules mindset they seem to have. Do you think that that's yeah part of the reason why this like we're we're seeing this like stupid space race between billionaires? It's really pointless. Totally. Uh, in fact, I was I was about to say that the next in my next sentence is because I literally just, as I mentioned when we were talking before, just finished like page seven hundred of the Walter Isaacson Musk biography, which oh. last time I checked this afternoon is number two on Amazon. It'll get to so this one. thing is going to sell a zillion copies, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's it maybe should like it's a pretty amazing book actually it it and this is like answering your question uh, directly jeremy because it begins with a completely horrifying and vile um profile of his father i mean his father is by all accounts like i was trying to i'm writing a review of it and i was like who are the worst people in literature I was like, there's like the judge from Blood Meridian. <laughs> yeah. There's like, what's the guy in the stand, like Randall Fogg or something? Like, who are people that just stalk, you know, every page of a book and they're always there even when they're not there? That's his dad. And his dad is like the worst version of like just hyper bigoted South African man who, among other things, has his eye on his stepdaughter from the age of 10 and then has two children with her, one at age 70. Um, so every, he's just like this poisonous um, presence in, in, Musk's, in Elon Musk's life. I mean, I, I genuinely pity him for having this man as his father. 
I've been really, really busy. <laughs> but the the sad thing for me and the tragic thing for me is that his dad has just a typical like Boer South African mentality, which is like, you know, we came out here, we did the great track. He doesn't say that, but that's implicit. You know, we, we even left behind the, the, the tame colony and we made something out of this barren land with our bare hands. And by Musk's, uh, you know, own account, he's done everything he can to like break away from his father. He's like, oh, my father, he's ignorant. I, you know, I just, I've, I've completely severed myself from him. But the more he talk, the way he talks about Mars is just the Great Trek 2.0. Like that's all it is. It's just like, we're going to go take this barren landscape and make, you know, make it bloom. And the fact that there's no humans there is, are all the better, but the impulse is still the same. It's like, it, it's posed as some, some grand futuristic, like transhumanist venture. Like, no, it's literally the most boring form yeah. <laughs> of like color colonialism that you could come up with. There's nothing original about that. as like, it's like an imagination or a form of politics. So I completely think that that's true. I think that the, I mean, you know, forget about all of the forms of, you know, truly heterogeneous collectivity that are like inhabit the pages of science fiction that you could actually draw on and do something actually challenging and actually interesting. Um, instead, the choice is like, no, we're, I'm just going to do like the frontier all over again. Um, so there is, I mean, there is a way that there's a, there's a great deflation for me in also in reading too much of these anarcho-capitalists and libertarians where you're just like, there's nothing really new about any of this. Like, it's really just an Ouroboros of just the dream of, of, um, the endless borderlands that can be conquered over and over again, um, by a new set of male hands. And to your point also about the frontier, you know, I think about how, you know, the most interesting science fiction novels that play with frontiers are the ones that in some ways will rhyme with the Westerns, with some of the later Westerns attempts to talk about um, the sort of violence that it creates or the type of person that is present or is pushed out present there or, you know, maybe trying to in one way or another reconcile with what Empire is and does, you know, um, and not these sorts of like, let's go terraform it adventures. And even when they do the terraforming adventures, I mean, like the main one, like Kim Stanley Robinson's read uh, the Mars trilogy, you know, is, is still <laughs> ultimately is not, is still pretty much just like, a, like it's not, they just brought earth there and because it's, there's nothing you do this. You can't terraform it in a generation. So you just brought earth there. So you're just dealing with earth shit. And so a lot of the times hearing these people talk about, the effort of like colonizing another part of a, or another frontier you know, and, and thinking about how a lot of the efforts to pretend like they're not going to bring whatever politics ideologies they have from outside there, except for presenting the frontier as this new found, you know, clear land where on onto which they can discover objective forms and truths about how human politics should be organized. Right. But in reality, it's just more so like, you know, so we can do the, the great big, you know, experiment that we've always wanted to do. Right. Well, even I think like Neil Stevenson is someone who I read a lot when I was writing this book because of his influence on the people who I was writing about, but also because of, I think the ways that they 
misread him or read him selectively because I actually have a lot of admiration for Neil Stevenson and I don't really see him as a straightforward just booster of this kind of politics actually I think he's like a very keen observer of it and he and he produces in his novels like well in the snow crash and, and diamond age um a vision of like diversity actually of um choices and politics you know like people could live in this variety of ways and when you hear for example the recent head of the Mises Institute uh, uh Jeff Deist who was very big on secession and sort of carrying the flag of neo-confederacy in the libertarian movement, which is now the ascendant caucus in the libertarian party. They will often sort of gesture at this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the Mises caucus is now the, the they run the libertarian party. Shout out to the um, They uh, will sort of say, hey, you know, you, you liberals, you can have your own territory, your own zone, we'll have our own. We'll see who likes which one. Um, but it always seems like a kind of a, like a thin gesture to me. Like it, it doesn't, I'm never persuaded by the, <laughs> by the, the, they're, I mean, nor should I be. I mean, they're, they're not actually, they're being disingenuous when they, when they propose this. Um, they of course have more of like the Miami vision of what this will look like. It's, it's not about, a sort of even distribution of resources and in which people can sort of play the game and, and, and mutually complement each other. It's about vacuuming up like all mobile capital to one, to one community and then defending it to the death against anyone who tries to take it. So it's part of me, you know, I have a kind of fantasy or daydream sometime of there being more robust conversations of the kind that do happen in anarchist circles to a certain extent between like left anarchists and right anarchists about, you know, what degree of collective ownership and what kinds of collective decision-making or whatever. Um, I think that part of my low key intention with the book was to kind of break the fixation of we, the American left on like top level politics. Like I think that the, one of the negative hangovers of the Bernie era was just this like presidential politics fixation and thinking it was all about seizing the white house and like, how can we, you know, run that up and, and, and grab the, the commanding Heights. Whereas obviously the Republicans have been playing a different game and other people, anarchists, either the right or the left have been playing a different game too. And how did they, who there was so much attention on in like the nineties, for example, um, kind of get forgotten about or left by the wayside. I think we need to just like readjust our perspective to look at different scales of politics. And uh, one of the things that these ANCAPs do is to bring attention to like the smallest scale of politics. And there's some virtue in that, I think. Yeah, I mean, to that as well, like it, it makes me think of the conversation we had with Alex Salmon, who's the slate politics writer who wrote this great story on the car dealership associations and the 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 absolutely insane power that these car dealers have as these um kind of petty bourgeois uh at the local level right like they control city town county state politics right and like they and, and it's a really powerful force that does have a kind of grassroots or astroturf, whatever, however you want to frame it, but like a very powerful kind of bottom up 
uh, influence at that top level. You you talked about this as well as this kind of Ouroboros, right? It's this it's this this circular kind of form of politics, but it very much is quite literally like a politics of return, right? We talk about the politics of exit, um, but there is baked into this as well a very strong strain of that politics of return. And this is very this is very clear in the the kind of Mises Institute that you're talking about, the the focus on secession, the focus on uh, you know, kind of your autonomous zones, um, which is very, very Rothbardian, right? Murray Rothbard. Maybe you could talk more about who Murray Rothbard is, but also this uh, explicitly neo-Confederate politics that really motivated a lot of this. Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked that because, I mean, the, the original impulse for this book, and it sort of changed shape over the course of writing it, mostly through editorial pressure. I think there was a vision of what would be a book that people would pick up at the local Barnes and Noble or the airport bookstore that they maybe wouldn't pick up um, if I wrote it a different way. And, but the intention was, was, you know, it was me trying to make sense of 2016 and 2017 and the alt-right, the far right, you know, where all of us were suddenly like, what the hell is this stuff? Um, Where did it come from? What's the nature of it? And of course, there was a sort of collective hysteria um, on the center, center left and far left. There's that great book by the um, Washington Post book critic called What Were We Thinking? That's just like a compendium <laughs> review of the hundreds of books about Trump that were written from like 2016 to 2020. He, like, I remember he posted a great picture of himself with just his arms around like this giant table filled with books being like, I'm never going to read any of these again and neither will anyone else. But I thought there was at least a kind of a consensus that whatever the far right was and the alt right, that it was somehow like cultural, like it was, it was ethno-nationalist, by which, or it was masculinist, but it was some, and it kind of was devoid of economic rationality in particular, that it was kind of, it was an irrational affective bond with some imagined community of either men or white people or Americans or whatever, right? And Murray Rothbart was one of the people that helped me sort of create a counter narrative, I think, which is just that Actually, I think there is an economic rationality to the far right and the economic and, and the alt right, as it was called. And Murray Rothbard is helpful because he lays it out for us. So Murray Rothbard is, uh, well, he was a New York Jew, uh, born and raised in New York City, born in the 1930s, went to Columbia, worked for the kind of early libertarian and neoliberal kind of education organizations and 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 uh, think tanks including the foundation for economic education joined them on peller and society quite young in his 20s in the 1950s hung around with ayn rand and her circle around that time the 50s and early 60s didn't really get along with them didn't really dig the personality cult that much and in the 1960s was probably one of the most important people who was trying to create a kind of a left-right um, entryist coalition of libertarians to try to persuade basically young student radicals and then hippies to join the ranks of libertarianism. 
So he helped found a magazine literally called Left and Right and was sort of trying to tap into people's anger at the United States government, their anger at conscription, their anger at adventurous foreign policy, anger at, you know, murdering and napalming uh, innocent people in Southeast Asia. There were a lot of very good reasons to hate the state in the 1960s, as you know, you can often find a lot of good reasons to hate the state, but they were especially pointed then. And he thought that he could do a little flip by turning those people's anger against the U.S. state into a hatred of the state as such. And they could then join the ranks of of um, li- people who are seeking to get rid of the government altogether. In the 60s, he was especially drawn to black nationalists and um Black Panthers of the variety who were seeking some level of secession, the kind of new uh, new Africa movements in the South, um, but uh, Malcolm X in his later uh, Black nationalist phase, and he was highly critical of Martin Luther King and what he saw as the kind of assimilationist demands of the civil rights movement. When in the 1970s there was uh, a lot of actually collaboration between Black and white radicals and things like you know, in the labor struggles in Detroit and elsewhere, he got disenchanted and decided that the left was full of shit and this was never going to work. And they were all just obsessed with, you know, with some return to like a primitive state of nature and um, their communes and their sort of collective protests were actually never going to be the path to a stateless society. They were actually still welfareists at heart, and all they wanted to do was get like a piece of the the state's kind of largesse. So he then went through uh, that period of disenchantment. In the 1970s, he helped found what became the Cato Institute with um, Charles Koch when it was still in San Francisco. When it then moved to Washington, D.C., and started with the, the Heritage Foundation in the Reagan years, starting to kind of become a policy shop for the Reagan administration. He felt like the libertarian roots of the Cato Institute had been totally traduced and sold out, and you needed to start something new to actually be far from captured by the government. And he started this thing called the Ludwig von Mises Institute in 1982, um, basically well, across the street from Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama with a blue-blooded Bostonian named Lou Rockwell who went to uh, BBN, the really fancy private school where a lot of like Harvard professors send their students, their kids uh, down the street from where I'm sitting right now. Um, In the 80s and 90s, he basically started looking for new allies. So the Black Panthers hadn't panned out, but who else wanted to get rid of the state as it existed and create, um, you know, new collectivities at a sub-state and sub-national level well, white nationalists, uh, the neo-Confederates who were forming around Chronicles magazine and the Rockford Institute and eventually the League of the South, which took its name in um, homage to the Lega Nord in Italy, which was making waves in the early 1990s. And, you know, he died in his dentist's office in 1996. But around that time, he was giving speeches, you know, condemning uh, the North for their conduct in the Civil War and saying that one day the South would rise again and they would put up statues of Confederates um, and their generals and tear down the, the ones of the North. So all of this could seem like just the, the you know, 
the emotional gyrations of like a man in his seventies, you know, and the pressure of whatever pop culture that he didn't understand anymore or something, which was kind of like anti-wokeism, like at the limit. Um, but it wasn't, he actually had, I mean, it could be that, that and something else, which was, he had a theory, which was like, well, if you break up the state, you break up government and you break up society with, you know, kind of a capital S then you need to have some kind of a glue to hold together these new communities that you're going to create. And he, along with a lot of other economists, including people like Douglas North, who won the Nobel Prize, argued that when you had kind of shared ethnicity, shared culture, shared language, it decreased transaction costs, it raised the level of trust, and it produced the more likelihood of like the durability of communities over the long haul. So his, by his explanation. He wasn't just an atavistic racist. I mean, he was, he was a, a Jew, among other things, around a lot of people who define themselves as being part of something called cracker culture, which was like supposedly the Scots-Irish migration to the South that should be considered a separate nation. I mean, he was around people who didn't really see Jews as part of their community. So it, he had to get past that in his own mind to justify his participation. And so what he, what he said was, was like ethnic sameness, single race communities, apartheid, quite literally, South African style, grand apartheid, is good economics. Forget about culture, forget about, you know, your, your emotional response to other people. It's not about that. It's just about dollars and cents. And whiteness, all white communities, better capitalist collectives. Um, and so that, for me, when you see the evolution of someone like that, it starts to unlock a lot more about the kind of conservative discourse and libertarian discourse that still circulates very much today. I mean, Charles Murray uses a very similar logic when he explains, um, you know, the reason for um, the need to kind of scale down governance responsibilities down to smaller communities. He rejects migration from what he sees as low IQ communities. Um, he calls on the kind of work of people like Robert Putnam, who said, you know, in some ways that's something similar, that ethnically homogeneous societies tend to have more levels of social trust. Um, so I think once you see racism, as we would all understand it, as having its own kind of economic common sense, then you get away from just the, the unhelpful argument by which people who are fearing to the far right or part of the alt-right are operating beyond economic rationality. All we need to do is bring them back to rationality, cleanse their minds, of these bad cultural thoughts, and they will then be reintegrated into the center. Well, not at all. I think the center also uses, you know, this pernicious logic of, I guess, you know, racial capitalism to kind of apportion out um, certain forms of activity and labor to some populations and not others. So weirdly enough, I think these kind of nut jobs like Rothbard, and he can just seem that way, full stop, can kind of be useful guides to the twists and turns of much more mainstream developments, I think, if you use them the right way. Yeah, no, I think, you know, Rothbard is, a, you know, particularly interesting because it's like, as we were talking about uh, up at the top, you know, tr trying to make sense, like trying to figure out where these, you know, larger groups of right-wingers, neoliberals, market radicals, 
libertarians fall in and and understanding it through Rothbard allows a, uh, a chance to both look at, okay, like a desire for a different type of state that doesn't erase that, that could be understood or misunderstood by people as an attempt to get rid of the state entirely. Um, a desire for these sort of exclusionary politics, um, some sort of explanation of like the beliefs that might get read as a cult uh, but come from this like larger bubbling cauldron that is trying to figure out what to do with this modernity that we have that feels so suffocating, but, and, but um, is in the way of whatever experimental or aspirational design. Yeah. They have. Right. Well, that's where the, I think that's where the crack up comes in. Right. I mean, I think that I had some discussion with like translators, for example, about how to translate that word to German, for example, and some smart reader, I can't remember who it was, but they were like, yeah, the thing I dislike about that category is you use it is it sounds like it's something that happens automatically. Like it sounds, that is the way that like Misians or libertarians use the crack up, right? Like economic policy produces through the forces of the market, like a crack up. Whereas I think Rothbard correctly understood was trying to perform in like a, as a transitive verb, like a crack up, right? He was trying to crack things up. And there, I think some of the things that are often perplexing about people like him can be clear if you understand the idea of like a transitional demand, right? I mean, like for Rothbard, a devout anarcho-capitalist to advise Pat Buchanan on his run for president in the early 1990s can make no fucking sense. Like, oh, you look, you look at it for a minute, right? But then the more you think about it or see what he's saying, he's like, oh, no, it's not like I want like a Buchanan governed country like forever. I just want, I know that if we inflame those kind of racialized energies, he called it a revolution of white Euro males, then we will trigger like a chain reaction and a sequence at the end of which we will have a stateless society or an ungovernable America. Like that was quite literally the intention was like to try to sabotage statecraft in its larger sense through promoting a chaos candidate who would bring about that end. Well, and this is what makes these people, I mean, yes, they are absolutely uh, fringe, you know, raving lunatics in a lot of ways, um, ideological zealots. But what makes them also, I think, really particularly powerful and also really seductive um, in the fact that, like, they are expressing uh, for what the vast majority of people are absolutely abhorrent views right or at least abhorrent views that you cannot say that out loud what man come on you can't say it like that you have to dress it up in some way you know um but like i think what makes them so powerful and so seductive is that they are also not just driven by an ideology but a rationality as you've been talking about right like like there is a logic to the madness here um, and they are they adhere to it extremely closely and one of the things i really like that you bring out in your discussion of rothbard uh, and and david friedman is that both of these people are really a any means justifies the end that we are striving for by any means possible right so it's like yeah i'll advise pat buchanan on his run for the presidency um and that might seem completely contradictory and inconsistent to you but it's not because it's a 
it's a means to an end. Yeah, I'll, I'll be all about black nationalism and Malcolm X until it seems no longer useful to me. And now I'm about white nationalism and neo-confederacy, right? So it's like, it is a very utilitarian view of politics uh, and social movements. Yeah, it is. And I think, I mean, one of the the big kind of changes over time that do happen in the neoliberal thought world in the 20th century that I wanted to sort of bring attention to as well. And this is a way that, you know, the world of the globalists is different from the world of the crack-up capitalists is the beginning of the 20th century, there really was this idea that democracy was dangerous because it was somehow inherently socialist. That if given votes, people eventually would just vote for more goodies from the state and eventually the state would be forced to sort of give itself over to the people just through full redistribution. And so you would get kind of like the elimination of private ownership and private property just through the ratchet effect of popular demands. And that common sense lasted from like, you know, well, that is why liberals in the 19th century wanted to limit the suffrage for basically that reason. These people are not just irrational, but they will be too rational in the sense that they'll see what they can get with their vote and then just, you know, use it as such. But that lasts until like the 80s or the 90s even. Um, If you look at the like James Buchanan, I mean, the, the, the idea of using kind of constitutional clauses and balanced budget amendments and kind of requiring super majorities to pass new legislation like what they have in California and the debt breaks that get put into constitutions and across Europe and so on and, and Eastern Europe. That's still premised on that idea that we need to kind of make sure that elected officials elected by democracies can only do so much and beyond that line they will be prevented by the kind of the, the wall of the law what and what and what Rothbard saw was he saw this very clearly and he called this the kind of Hayek model he's like you know that the Hayekians have the, he's like the problem with Hayek is he was an intellectual and he just addressed other intellectuals and so he basically just was an elite who talked to other elites who said, like, listen, let's be honest, we're all afraid of these people. <laughs> let's not get ourselves. Like, in the end, we want to kind of tie the hands of the demos because the demos will kill us. The masses are scary. Um, Rothbard's radicalism was to say, like, let it rip. Like, I don't care. He's like, no, will, will they attack me? Yes, but I'll be armed, you know, like, and I'll have prepared for it in advance. So, I mean, the kind of Ron Paul, Rockwell, Rothbard sort of 90s discourse was just uh, embracing that, the destructive capacity of the the demos on the one hand, but also reconceiving of what the democracies actually wanted, or specifically American populations. He was just like, American populations aren't socialist. No, they're not. Like, they're not in their heart redistributors. They're not collectivists. They want their stuff. They're going to protect their stuff to the death. So if we take away the state, what we'll get is a bunch of people fortifying their own homes to protect their own stuff and, you know, fragile coalitions with other people who they barely trust to protect each other's stuff. That's what America will turn into. And they're like, and that sounds a lot freer in their minds to what exists in the wake of, you know, the New Deal and the Great Society programs and so on. So that 
that is what sets apart like Hans Hermann Hoppe and Rothbart and Rockwell from the people gathering at the Mont Pelerin Society who are still to this day sort of for the most part trying to figure out kind of better locks and bolts to put on constitutions to prevent this kind of a thing from happening. And and the the let it rip mindset is also I mean that that is the 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 real kind of masses mindset in a lot of ways like it's so much more common than the the i i mean i think murray rothbard had that exactly right it's it the the highfalutin intellectual arguments of these you know hyper elites like hayek and you know sitting in hyde park right like you know milton friedman hayek and barack obama you know going to dinner together and talking about policy or whatever right like Whereas Murray Rothbard, like the let it rip mindset, I mean, I just think about my own upbringing. I, I was born in the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, um, and uh, I, I don't, I never, because I didn't know to look for it. I don't know what kind of literature my grandfather had, for example, laying around. But I do know that we had gold bullion uh, in a, a, you know. In a, in a hidden compartment in the house and also a lot of guns and ammunition. And he was very explicitly, and, and he was not a hunter. It was very explicitly a, I will protect myself from anyone who wants to come and take, a, take my house or my family away from me. Like, and that was just a, a very common mindset um, amongst that, amongst that, that crowd, and, you know, in the nineties, right? Like um, not that long ago. And so this, this is that let it rip mindset. And I think we also, we live with, um, you know, in, in many ways, directly and indirectly the legacy of the, of Rothbardian thought um, in what you call the soft succession, right? Which is the suburbs, right? Gated communities. These are the homogenous communities, racially homogenous, class homogenous, um, you know, culturally homogenous. And also uh, this is the franchise of rules, right? That like, you know, th- these are, these are rules not created by the state, but created by um you know, governing bodies within the uh, the gated community, and and so on, and 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 this is also like the hotbed of radicalism. I mean, we all know the very famous, um, you know, uh, was it St. Louis, the the couple that came out um, to confront the Black Lives Matter protest with their their pistols and their AR-15, right? Like, you know, this is the, this is the, the hotbed of radicalism in the U S at least is the, uh, the suburbs and whether it's literally gated communities or whether it's like socially gated communities, where, where are we living with the, the actual legacy of the kind of crack up capitalism, which is not just the, the high level of the Hong Kongs and Singapore's. I mean, you know, there's a reason why we haven't focused on that. And that's because as we talked about before the episode, that's what people want to talk to you about. That's what people want to ask about, because it's really obvious. It's in your face, right? Like Prospera, Seasteading, these are spectacles. Hong Kong, Singapore, these are monuments, right? But like, uh, I'm even more interested, I think, in the way that like, 
Rothbardian thought and Friedman thought, David Friedman thought, can be found uh, in the the networks of suburbs that uh, all of us or many of us live within or have to live beside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that category of soft secession is actually from that same um, Mises Institute <laughs> former head. Like that was something he was advocating directly. He was saying, we need to do what I call soft secession. And what he meant was, yes, one thing was, yeah, withdraw from local uh, city government by either forming, you know, incorporating into new communities or moving into places that have like no redistribution to like inner city populations or urban populations. Um, Whether that would mean an outright gated community, right, is probably beyond the means of a lot of people. But on the other hand, the new sociological research on those ungated communities shows interesting things that actually it isn't just the super wealthy. It also isn't just an overwhelmingly white population that's moving into gated communities or these sort of common interest developments as they're like technically, technically called that there is kind of a kind, there are many reasons mostly to do with security and, and, and fear of crime that are leading people to enter these spaces that are these private governments kind of in miniature one of the things I talk about in the book is like the the way that these seemingly unglamorous spaces of like gated communities full of like, you know, old people in the scrublands of Arizona, south right. of Tucson can now be seen as in the minds of their of their boosters as these kind of like uh, scintillating laboratories of like private governance. Um, that is part of it. And I think actually as an aside as one of the ways that I feel like anything that people in Silicon Valley or VCs do gets overlaid with often a kind of unearned patina of novelty. I mean, this new project to create this community in the Bay area, it's just a gated community. Like it's like a very normal thing that has been happening for decades now. And it doesn't require like some, some like grand rhetoric about how they've just, you know, transformed the nature of, of, of American society or capitalism, or whatever. It's just a gay community. They, they've been taking off since the nineties. They're still doing well. Um, other forms of soft secession, which I think are important are uh, around education. So I think that the mainstream version of that is, you know, choosing your home based on the school district which is, you know, as people, the more kind of mainline sociologists know or have shown us like Matthew Desmond and people like that is like the primary engine of the reproduction of inequality in the United States is basically like property markets and school districts, people choosing those, uh, sorting themselves out voluntarily and not just the 1%, you know, like middle class people and up based on um, the access that they have then to property tax funded education. This makes me think of, I mean, obviously, like education vouchers are a major thing for libertarians. Um, This makes me think of another guy who would be very much in this pantheon of the like anti-democratic market radicals is Brian Kaplan at George Mason University, right? Who has, I don't know if you're familiar with his, his, his work, um, but you know, very much one of these George Mason libertarian economists, very, very popular 
um, blogger and has also written a lot of very popular books around like, you know, the, the myth of the rational voter, right, which is an anti-democracy screed about why democracies choose bad policies, as the subtitle puts it. And then, you know, he's uh, another uh, a book. He's a very big proponent of, and this is very Muskian. He's a very big proponent of have as many children as you possibly can and also abolish the education system. Yeah, and he's really platformed and, and pushed this other GMU economist who wrote a pretty extraordinary book called Hive Mind, how the IQ of a nation explains its wealth and <laughs> economic performance. He's one of the biggest boosters. I, I was reading a blog by him. I have a piece coming out about IQ fetishism. And in 2014 or so, when, when after Summers, Lawrence Summers had gotten all into all the trouble for saying that women were unable to do science as good as well as men because of their brains. Um, this guy was arguing that he was defending what he called the summer's heresy. He was like, I might defend the, I mean, it had like the most like libertarian <laughs> blog post of all times. Might I defend the summer's heresy? <laughs> <laughs> and then like 14 graphs. You know, like below. Oh, I mean, it really is stuff. like three hundred and fifty comments, and Steve Saylor is the first one. <laughs> oh my god! Rich. I mean, it really <laughs> is economics as race science, right? Like, yeah. like they have turned economics into well, not turned it; they've just heightened the fact that economics is a race science. They brought it back out of the background. Yeah. Look, a caliper is just an, an, a, a, a way. It's a tool. It's a tool to collect empirical data. And you can't deny it's a form that. of measures. If it ma- <laughs> if it matters, measure it, including yeah. skulls. We're quantifying things. Uh, that's right. Um, so so there's that. The school thing on the in the mainstream fashion is what we just described. But but the rise of homeschooling is very significant, and I think like over overlooked sometimes. Um, you know, until the 1970s, it was illegal in the United States. There was like there was like uh, a few thousand people who were homeschooled in the United States. It was extremely rare. Um, there was very aggressive lobbying led by uh, someone who will lead into my third way of seceding named Gary North, who was an evangelical libertarian gold bug who <laughs> helped lead the um, congressional lobbying effort to get um, homeschooling permitted eventually in all 50 states. And since COVID, as everyone knows, like that's just amplified things like PragerU, Mises University, Mises Institute is introducing a sort of like homeschooling packs. Um, so this is another way that they promote what they call soft secession is, you know, drop out of the educational system. Obviously, universities, which are, you know, as this latest New York Times report uh, showed of like are undergoing like this huge credibility crisis right now. And like the, idea, the consensus of, of higher ed being good is just like collapsing in the last 10 years, mostly on the Republican side, but softening on the democratic side too. So alternative higher ed is another way that that's being mainlined. Uh, bring the conversation back around just briefly because it, it leads into what you just said. But earlier uh, you had mentioned Neil Stevenson. Did you by chance happen to read the, uh, the Dodge books? Reem D and Dodge, there were two separate Books. No, I didn't see them. No, I didn't so see in them. in the second book, I've and if any listeners haven't read this book and want to read the book, just fast forward a little bit. Uh, basically, there's a whole ploy in that book where a, a billionaire causes a uh, hoax of a a bomb being dropped in Moab, Utah. It was so well done that people 
a large portion of the country doesn't believe that it actually happened because they saw the proof that it didn't happen. But there's this population of people that refuse to believe didn't happen. And so it causes a schism in the United States. So you've got these portions of the United States that you have to get a visa to travel through. And each one has kind of got its own like religious rules. And so like in part of the book, they travel through Iowa and you can't wear mixed fabric clothing in this part of Iowa, but they refer to that part of America as Ameristan, which is, you know, fucking stupid. It's an allusion to the Al Qaeda, you know, all the Southerners that want to be, you know, uh, Al Qaeda, but you call them Al Qaeda or whatever. Anyway, fast forward all that. It just seems like libertarians are trying to speed or like trying to play the slow version of Moab and kind of start gearing things to what they want and start carving out the country in that way, as opposed to, you know, going to doing the hard route and going to space. So we'll, we'll cause a separation and then we get control over here and you can, you godless liberals can have the coast. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. That, that is, you know, for the heart, more hardcore, like Mises Institute, anarcho-capitalist types, that's absolutely it. Like there's space inside of the existing nation to effectively secede without actually going through the trouble of a civil war. Um, the third though, way that I was going to mention actually tags right onto what you're saying because it fits so well with this book that I think is underrated actually by um, someone who kind of sucks politically. So maybe that makes sense, but Lionel Shriver's book, The Mandibles, um, features this extraordinary place called the like i think it's just called the free state of nevada but it's a place where there's like a gold-backed uh currency after there's been a kind of a hyperinflation and the rest of the economy has collapsed but that's the you know i still think kind of more important than anything is like gold bug ideology which is now transitioned into kind of crypto bug ideology and that's the other form of soft secession they really advocate is like, you know, to your, your granddad with his gold ingots. I mean, he's not the only one. Um, and the people who think that their, their, their savings are safe and, and other forms of assets are like crypto is obviously much more far-fetched. But that is seen as a way to kind of to both uh, hedge against the possible collapse of the economy, but also hopefully to accelerate the collapse of the economy. Um, there's a German libertarian who is in the Bundestag. He's in the German parliament who described turning your assets into cash assets and assets into gold as the 21st century of the Gandhian hunger strike. <laughs> <laughs> incoherent yeah, but it's, it's an act of civil disobedience which will like bring down, bring down like the hollow regime of fiat currency right. um, and I do think that you know if there's one thing that does still knit Americans together it is money and money is is taking so many wild turns these days, like it's dematerialization, this possibility of sort of a central bank digital currency, forget the whole crypto thing, the rising, you know, gold is doing well um, in the current environment. So my money is on money is a place where like <laughs> things politically start to get stranger and stranger and um, new kind of forms of, you know, uh, alternate collectivity might end up um, coalescing. 
Well, I mean, so, there's so much in the book that it, it's a really, really rich book, really interesting. I mean, kind of organized along these uh, a, a, a lot of case studies. Every chapter is a case study of some form of crack up capitalism, some thinker, some experiment, whatever. Um, there's so many things as well. I mean, for my money, uh, speaking of money, I mean, for my money, um, I, I really think uh, something we could speak we could and should spend a whole episode just talking about is um, the kind of the, the, the utopian ideals of, and the way that these um, libertarian and anarcho-capitalists in particular love to go as, as uh, far afield as possible to find utopian ideals, right? David Friedman's obsession with the Icelandic legal system, right? Um, you have a chapter on Somalia. And of course, there's like a whole cottage industry of George Mason University professors writing books about piracy in Somalia as like anarcho-capitalist praxis, you know, mm -hmm. um, they, yeah. they, uh, they, they are, they are nerds of the, of the lowest order. The invisible hook. Yeah. The invisible hook. That's exactly That's right. right. Uh, 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 and, and so, um, they, they are nerds of the lowest order and that they get super obsessed with, with things, uh, and be in LARP living in a medieval village as, uh, David Friedman does. And, um, but I, I also think that like, for me, juxtaposing the utopian thought experiments here with the, um, uh, the, the actual realities of like what this world looks like, uh, it can really be found in that PS of David Friedman's Machinery of Freedom, right? Where it's like, by the way, if you do actually put together an anarcho-capitalist society, um, it's going to look like a suburban homeowners association with a network mm -hmm. of insurance companies, right? That's mm -hmm. going to be yeah. the state at best, here. Yeah, at best. At, at yeah. best, at best. <laughs> and, and, and no one has ever once associated their homeowners association with uh, enhanced freedom and liberty, right? Like, um, but that is the that is the actual like practical reality of of this dream, as you said, at, at best. best. With that, then, uh, it remains to only be said, Quinn, thank you so much for coming on. I mean, it's it really, really that. loved talking to you uh, yeah. about all of this. Really, really fascinating work. And I'm um, I'm very much looking forward to Hayek's Bastards coming in sometime in the future. Great name. Not too long, actually. Not too long. It's mostly from the cutting room floor of this last one. So I'm just oh, yeah. going to staple it together and get it out there. Like that's that. the way to do it put together a book <laughs> from the cutting room floor of the he previous says. book that's, that's right. the answer. Yeah. thank you so much i appreciate it, it yeah fun. thanks Deal. quinn um uh, and everyone else can find us of course at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week uh and until next time later adios, adios.
Kill, 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 kill. 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 kill.